Good morning, church. How are you today? Nice to see you. Happy Mother's Day. I realized after I said Happy Mother's Day in the first service that there's not really a, a good response. You know, like other things we say, you, there's something to say back, but you can't say Happy Mother's Day back to me because that's weird, right? So Matt said, maybe, maybe we just say, and unto you, right? Happy Mother's Day, and unto you. No, probably not. Uh, we're going to dive into John 10 in just a second, but before we do, I want to introduce kind of a new little piece of our services. Um, we've been talking as a leadership team over the last little bit about the fact that there are all kinds of things going on around here all the time, and while we have the e-news that comes out on Thursday, the website, the iPhone app, there's all kinds of places where we disseminate information. There are some broader sort of philosophical things that sometimes we don't have the opportunity to lay out to people. We do it at the congregational meetings, uh, but unfortunately, you are all busy during the congregational meetings with doctor's appointments and... And uh, I don't, you're watching baseball on TV. I don't know what you're doing during those. But very few people come to the congregational meetings usually. And so even though we're imparting really important stuff at those meetings, a lot of times the, the broader church body doesn't necessarily get to hear them. So periodically, maybe once a month or so, I'm going to take a, a couple of minutes in our service and just sort of lay out some things that are happening so that you're aware and sort of caught up to date and whatever and feel like you're, you're in the know on, on what God's doing. One little thing today I wanted to put in front of you as we sort of introduce this idea is that we're introducing a new piece in our worship services on Sunday morning. Um, some of you know that our philosophy to musical worship in our church has been, uh, for the last two years, has been about breadth. That we don't just have one style, we don't just play one kind of way, we don't just have one leader. We've actually got a, 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 a philosophy of worship through music that involves sort of representing the breadth of who God has brought to this church. So some weeks it's acoustic guitars, and some weeks it's a full band, and some days there's a little chorus, and you kind of never know what you're going to get. That's not accidental, that's intentional. Because we really do want to represent the, the breadth of who God has assembled in this place. And by the way, if you're uh, talented musically and you'd like to sort of represent what you bring as a part of our team, we'd love to have that conversation with you. But on, a, on, on that note about breadth, I want to say that over the last uh, couple of years since I've been here... I've been really burdened and kind of heavy-hearted about the fact that in this room, and you can't see it right now, but it's behind this wall, in this room we have a beautiful pipe organ that sits kind of right here. You can see the top of it over the deal. And unfortunately, despite the fact that this beautiful instrument is here and there are people who made all kinds of sacrifices in order to have this installed, we in our church today don't actually have a ton of people who are capable of playing that well. I don't know, like a pianist can't really play a pipe organ. It's a whole different thing. You've got to make your arms and legs work at the same time. It's a, it's a complicated maneuver. There are a few people in our church who can play the pipe organ, but they're not able to do it on a regular basis. And so uh, broadly, that, that pipe organ sits idle most of the time. And that, that kind of grieves me because of the stewardship of it. God's put this machine here, and we should be using it as part of our worship. Well, it, uh, it came to my attention about a year ago that, that when they installed, actually after they installed the pipe organ, they also installed in it a MIDI system, which that, that will mean nothing to some of you, and it will mean a lot to others of you. But what that means is that with the pipe organ, we have the ability to record keystrokes and preserve them in the computer on the pipe organ. So uh, what we've done, even though we don't have currently in our church a regular organist who can play it week in and week out, what we did is we went to Biola and we found a, uh, like one of the foremost, you know, like organ, pipe organ players in the country and we asked her if she would come and record some postludes into our system and she's been doing that over the last two months and uh, so now we have, we, we have a whole variety of different postludes 
sermons that we will be implementing at the conclusion of our worship services, both as a way for us to respond and reflect to what God has said, also for us to, you know, I think wisely steward the instrument that God has given us, and just to be able to worship together in a little bit more breadth. Does that make sense? But I wanted you to know what's happening, because it's not like a Phantom of the Opera thing. It's, there's not a ghost playing the pipe organ. <laughs> Uh, it's not, there was actually a lady who came in and executed all of that. She's just not here every Sunday morning. So uh, it will be playing. It's not a recording. It's actually keystrokes recorded, the air coming through the pipes. It's beautiful. We did it at the last service. But at the end of our service, as we exit, uh, we'll exit to, uh, to pipe organ postludes. I just wanted you to know what was happening there. All right. That's some pipe organ fans. It's great. Well, before we dive into John 10, let me also say uh, that even though I've already said Happy Mother's Day, I also want to acknowledge that on a day like Mother's Day, uh, it, it, that can be a very heavy day for some of you, right? There, there are some uh, who are celebrating their moms, and you're going to have a great lunch, and you're gonna, hopefully you're going to clean the whole house later or whatever. But there are others of you here this morning who, for, for you, Mother's Day can be a very heavy thing. And maybe that's because you've recently lost your mom, or maybe you're in a broken relationship with your mom. Maybe you don't know who your mom is. Maybe you're someone in this church who's been trying desperately over this last season to become a mom, and you've not had victory in that. And so I know that coming to a day like Mother's Day where you see other people celebrating, for some of you, watching others celebrate Mother's Day can be actually a really heavy thing. And I want you to know that as a family, we are with you in it, and we see you, and we acknowledge that this can be a day of pain for some, and, and we want to walk alongside you. And so today, if that's how you respond to Mother's Day, if it feels heavy, I don't want you to feel like you're lost in the mix here. We love you, we are praying for you. If we can pray specifically with you, we would cherish the opportunity to do that, either after our services today or in the future or whatever. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't wanna race past it and not sort of recognize the fact that it, it may be a heavy day for some of you. And in that case, man, we are, we are brothers and sisters, we are family together in it, and we wanna walk the path even through the hard times, right? So just know, just know we see you and we care about you and we'd love to walk more closely. So there's that. Uh, let, let us please turn to John 10. So if you have your Bible or if you have your John journal. By the way, if you're a guest with us or if you're relatively new around here, we'd love to put one of these journals in your hand. We as a family have kind of committed to be journaling what God is saying to us through our study of the Gospel of John. And uh, here we find ourselves in John 10, 22 this morning. If you don't have one of those journals, you can grab one in the lobby on your way out or at the, at the Connections desk. I always call it the Connections desk. That's not what it's called. It's called Guest Central. I get my hand slapped for that. It's fine. I get my hand slapped for a lot. Uh, when we finished on Easter Sunday in John uh, 10, 21, you'll remember that Jesus had just given this beautiful and incredible proclamation, a couple of his I am statements in there. He says, I am the good shepherd. He says, I am the door for the sheep. And remember, he goes on to say, we looked at this on Palm Sunday and on Easter Sunday, that Jesus himself has the power to lay down his life and to take it back up again. It was unheard of, right? These claims were mind-blowing, that Jesus would say he could lay down his life and take it up again. And we talked on Easter about the fact that, that he not only has the ability to take up his own life again, but that through his resurrection power and through his grace, he extends to us resurrection life, that he gives us the ability to be made new and risen from the dead as well. And, and the fact that those claims that Jesus made sort of stirred in the people and in the crowd uh, some division. If you go to John John 10, even just backing up a couple of verses, look at 19. It says, there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who was oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So there's a lot of confusion and a lot of uh, questioning and a lot of arguments and division among people about what exactly is going on here. Exactly who is this Jesus? Jesus. 
When we come to verse 22, we see there's a little bit of a jump of time. The writer here, John, tells us that this is at the time of the Feast of Dedication, which would have been about two months later than the Feast of Tabernacles, which is where all the stuff between like John 7 and the beginning of John 10 happened. So there's a couple of, a couple of months span when we pick it up in 22. It's winter time. It's our December, essentially. The Feast of Dedication, by the way, is now called Hanukkah. That's the same thing. It's a celebration of the fact that in... Um, in one, I don't want to get the date wrong here, in 165 BC, Judas Maccabeus led a revolt of the Jewish people. He overthrew the rule of Antiochus Epiphanes, who had desecrated the temple and had desecrated their worship. They chased out Antiochus Epiphanes, right? And they reconsecrated the temple for the pure and unadulterated worship of God. That's what the Feast of Dedication is all about. So it's a relatively new feast, too. It's not like the Feast of Tabernacles, which goes all the way back to Exodus. This is something that came from about 165 BC. Jesus goes to Jerusalem for what will be the last time before he heads to Jerusalem for his crucifixion. And when he gets there, he's confronted by these people in the midst of the Feast of Dedication. He's confronted by this group of Jews who circle up around him. In fact, it says in the text, it says, uh, Jesus was walking, verse 23, Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, they, they ask him a question and then they make a demand. But that, that phrase there where it says they gathered around him, it kind of means they pinned him down. So they circled around him and they made it so he couldn't move, right? They tr- kind of trap him. And once they've got him where they want him, remember they've had two months to be wrestling with who is this guy and what does this mean? And d- is he demon possessed? Is he a good man? Is he a bad guy? Is he the Messiah? Who is he? Now they sort of pin him down and they say this to him. It says, um, <clears throat> I'll read from 22 on. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem and it was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Tell us plainly. Now, when they say to him, how long will you keep us in suspense, that isn't them being inquisitive. That's not them going, hey, you know what? We're all on the edge of our seat and we can't wait to hear whether or not you're the Messiah. The word here that's translated suspense means agitation or frustration. They they essentially are saying, how long will you keep our souls in turmoil? How long will you keep us agitated and frustrated? We're essentially annoyed. It's a, it's a question that comes from annoyance and aggravation rather than interest, right? They're not inquiring. They're frustrated with Jesus. How long are you going to keep our souls lifted up? How long are you going to keep us aggravated and irritated? And then they make a, a command to Jesus. They say, if you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And that word plainly is the very same one that Jesus' brothers used in John 7. Remember in John 7 when he was going to the, they were going to the Feast of Tabernacles. And his brothers looked at Jesus and they said, hey, if you want to be popular, you know, like if you really want to stir up a crowd, you need to go where everybody is and do some of your magic show and, and proclaim yourself plainly or boldly. And Jesus says, it's not my time, that's not, it's not my approach, Right? These people look at Jesus and they say, how long will you leave us agitated and frustrated, stirred in our souls about who you are? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. They make this demand of him. So I want you to understand their posture. Their posture is not of of people who are sitting intently waiting for Jesus to reveal something to them they're anxious to hear. It's of people who are frustrated that he hasn't been saying what they want him to say the way they want him to say it, right? 
I don't know, as moms who are celebrating Mother's Day in the room, those of you who are moms, I'm sure, just knowing what my house is like, that there are probably lots of times where you're having an argument with your kids about things that you've said very clearly, and yet they're pretending like they didn't hear you. Or they're trying to opt out on a technicality, right? I told you, we don't put dishes in the sink, we put dishes in the dishwasher, right? And the kids are going, when did you ever say that? And you're like, I've said it a million times, right? The kids are like, I wish you'd just speak plainly. Like, why can't you just tell me what you want? If you want me to clean the garage, just tell me you want me to clean the garage. And the moms are like, I've told you, clean the garage. What else can I do, right? These people circle Jesus up and they say, how long will you leave us agitated? If you're the Christ, say it plainly, say it boldly. And Jesus' response is similar to that one. Look at what Jesus says. In response to their demand, in verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you and you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me but you do not believe because you were not among my sheep. This is a devastating thing Jesus says to them. They say, if you're the Christ, tell us plainly. And he, he, he points to two different things. He says, I have told you, number one, and you didn't believe. Number two, the works that I've done, my miracles, have proclaimed the same thing. So not only in my word, but in my actions, I have articulated clearly to you who I am. And yet you don't believe. Now, it's worth noting that for those of us who are followers of Jesus, those of us who are his disciples, this approach is the approach for the clearest kind of articulation, an articulation that comes in both word and deed. The word makes the truth plain. The things we say make the truth plain. And our actions that back up what we have said make the truth powerful, right? Jesus says here, I've told you with my words, and I've acted with my works, and yet you still don't believe. I think for us, many times, we sort of lean to one side or the other. The pendulum in our life swings one way or another, and we either want to be people who talk a lot about Christianity, who talk a lot about apologetics, who talk a lot about the Bible, who have all kinds of facts and figures and all kinds of words we can spout, but we don't have any actions to back it up. And if anything, sometimes, despite all of our Christian talking, our words actually deny what we've said about, or our actions deny what we've said about Jesus. Or the pendulum can swing the other way, and we're all action all the time, but we can't articulate the truth in our speech. You might be very loving and very generous, and you might be serving the poor, and you might be doing all kinds of good deeds, but you never take the time to say, I am pouring out of a life that has been filled up by the Lord Jesus, right? Jesus says in response to your demand for what it's worth, I have told you and you don't believe, and my works have shown you and you don't believe, and he tells them why. Even though I've said it, and even though I've done it, and my word and action go hand in hand to clearly articulate who I am, you have not believed because you are not my sheep. It's very similar to what Jesus had said in John chapter 8. Remember that in John chapter 8, verse 47 or 46 and 47, where he says, which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. It's a little bit of a, a, a little bit of a like sucker punch here. Jesus looks at them and says, I've said it and I've done it, but you don't believe because you aren't part of my flock. You don't believe because you aren't part of my flock. And he'll go on in John chapter 10 to say that the father gives his flock to him. That the the, the ability to be part of the flock of God has something to do with the fact that God ordains that. That he gives Jesus the flock and that they cannot be lost. That Jesus in harmony with the father in unity of purpose and action preserve and protect the flock. We'll talk about it in a second. 
But here Jesus looks at them and says, you can't believe, you're incapable of belief because you aren't of my flock. Now for some of you in the room who aren't, uh, you don't really like the whole Calvinist thing and the predestination thing, this maybe makes you feel a little bit agitated, doesn't it, right? Because it seems, and it is, Jesus saying, hey, part of belief, like the, the prerequisite for belief is that you have to be chosen by God. Right, that you have to be chosen by God before you can believe, and if you aren't part of the flock, belief is impossible for you. Jesus is saying that here, and so for those of you who are Calvinists or determinists or whatever, you're like, yeah, right? Well, don't get too excited. Because look at what Jesus does next. It's really startling. He does say, you don't believe because you're not part of my flock, but then he goes on to talk about what the characteristics of being part of his flock look like. And I want you to think about why he says what he says when he says it. He says to them, I told you and you do not believe. This is verse 25. I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Then in 27, he goes on to give this passage that is a favorite for Christians, right? This is one of those ones we rally around. 27 and following, he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. It's actually a really beautiful declaration. There are some really beautiful promises in there for the flock of God. Jesus says, my sheep hear me and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. The Father has given them to me and I hold them into my hand and they will never be taken away. I will never lose hold of them because the Father's hand encompasses my hand. He and I are united in purpose and action in preserving and protecting the flock. And they will never perish. They will have eternal life. They will never be taken away. There's this beautiful picture of the security of those who believe in Christ painted here. But here's my question as we begin this morning. Why why does he give that speech of those beautiful promises about what it means to be part of the flock to people he's just told are not part of the flock? That seems kind of rude, doesn't it? He's just said to them, you can't believe, you don't believe because you aren't part of my flock. You're not my sheep. And then he goes on to say, but let me tell you how great it is to be part of my sheep. Why? Why? If those people are incapable of belief, why, why deliver this declaration of these beautiful promises? Why will Jesus continue to go on here in John 10 and further on in the text, he'll literally look at them and say, if you can't believe in me, believe in my works that you may know and understand that the Father and I are one. Why is he calling to them? Why is he compelling them to believe? The reality is that in this text, Both the the predetermined order of the Father in choosing the sheep and the call to believe are both present. Jesus is teaching them both, right? He's talking both about predestination and free will. He looks at these people that he's just said to them, they're not the, the flock of God, and he's saying to them, won't you believe? Now that should come as a great sign of hope for some of us in the room. There may be some of you in the room who are around the edges. You're kind of thinking about Jesus and you've been processing, you've been looking at the scripture and trying to decide what you believe about him. And you come to a text like this one where Jesus says, you're not of my flock. And maybe you look into the mirror and you go, well, that's it for me. Maybe I'm just not of the flock. Maybe that's the bottom line for me. I just don't have any hope because I'm not one of his sheep. Listen, Jesus goes on to say, this is what it means to be part of my flock. Trust in me, believe in me. There is absolutely in this text a call to become his sheep. And so here we see these two things holding hand, both the choice of man and the choice of God side by side. 
Jesus declares these beautiful things about what it means to be one of his sheep, and all of them speak to the cries of the human heart. No matter who you are in this room, young or old, man or woman, no matter where you come from, we all want to be able to hear the voice of God, don't we? Don't we all want to know what God has for us, what he's saying? We want to be able to understand it. It's why we turn to the scriptures again and again. It's why so many people in the world are turning to all kinds of false religions. Because wherever they can try and find some sort of ability to hear something greater than themselves, they're looking for it. We're hungry to hear God's voice. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. They hear me. They're called by me. He also says, I know them. I'll tell you, one of, the, one of the saddest things in our culture today is how little we actually know each other. And we feel it, don't we? You're gonna have 10,000 followers on social media and not be known by anybody. And there's this desperation in the heart of mankind to just be known, that somebody would look into your eyes and not just see you as a statistic, not just see you as another nameless face, but that they would know you and care for you and love you. Jesus looks at this crowd who have already said, we're agitated in our souls. Please give us the answer because we're, we're stirred. And Jesus says, you can hear my voice. I, I would know you, right? You could be known by me. He says, and they follow me. Don't miss the fact that he says, my sheep follow me. They hear my voice, I know them, and they follow. There is unequivocal truth here where Jesus is saying, if you're truly part of the flock, then you will be obedient. You will do the things I say. It's why in Luke 6, Jesus would look at the crowd and say, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? It's interesting to me the places in our world today where we've separated the two. That we feel like it's enough to simply know the right things about God or to declare the right things about God. You can come to a church on a Sunday morning like this and sing the right things about God in a song. Nod your head when I say things about God from the Bible, but the rest of the week you are not following him. Guess what? That's not indicative of being part of the flock. If you aren't obedient, if you're not listening to the voice of God as he calls you and knows you and gives you instruction and then being obedient to go where he calls you, that's not indicative of a flock member, to be honest. The sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow. Obedience is a part of this, that in response to his calling, in response to his grace, we would live lives of followership. Jesus goes on to say, I give them eternal life. If you have your journal this morning, underline that word give and circle it again. We talk about this a lot, but eternal life is not something you buy. It's not something you trade for. Jesus isn't sort of waiting to see how good you are or how many Bible verses you memorize or how many old ladies you walk across the street. He's not evaluating to decide whether you're worthy of eternal life. The bottom line is I'm not. I'm not worthy of it. There's nothing I can do. Even the good things I try to do are like filthiness, the Bible says, right? He says I give them eternal life. It's a gift. Underline it and circle it, right? It's a gift. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. If you have a pen, underline and circle that word never Never perish. Eternal life that begins when you put your faith in Christ and continues into infinity. That death is erased. What, what is it that the people are agitated by? They're agitated by Roman rule. They're agitated by their waiting for the Messiah. They're agitated for the fact that they're not in control of their own lives, that they know they're gonna die. They're thinking about the story of Judas Maccabeus who comes and delivers the temple from Antiochus Epiphanes, and they're wanting a Messiah who will be like Judas the hammer. They're looking for Jesus the hammer, and that's not who he is. But he says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. The Father gives them to me, and no one can snatch them from my hand. 
It says in verse 28, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. And no one, underline circle, no one. There is no human being. There is no institution. There is no spiritual force or power. There is no individual, even in themselves, who can undo what God the Father and God the Son in harmony have decided to do for the saints. He says, I hold them in my hand. And uh, when I was growing up, every time I heard this verse, I always thought about like me sitting in the palm of Jesus' hand, you know, and somebody trying to snatch me out, you know, and it's like that Kung Fu TV show from the 70s, right? If you haven't seen that, I wouldn't worry about it. It's super boring. They call it Kung Fu. This is a, I digress, right? But they call that show Kung Fu, but there's very little Kung Fu in that show, right? And as a kid, I was always really excited to see some Kung Fu. It's mostly just bald guys talking to each other. Turns out that would be very relevant for the rest of my life. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, when, when I think about this passage now, when I, th- when I think about no one will snatch them out of my hand, the Father and I are one, and no one will snatch them out of his hand, no one has more power than the Father, we are one, and united, we're united in purpose and action to preserve and protect the flock. I don't think about being in the palm of his hand, I think about him holding my hand. As a parent, again, a Mother's Day picture here, but as a parent, we all know that idea of like holding on tightly to my child's hand. And making sure that I don't turn loose of them so that they're safe when we walk across the street. We always had a rule growing up in our house like, hey, you know what? You do not cross the street until you're holding daddy's hand. You gotta hold on to daddy, right? I remember my son Hank when he was a little guy, uh, just a little peanut, you know, he he looked at me and he goes, me hold my own hand. (laughs) And I'm like, no, that's not, that doesn't work. You can't, it's not, you can't hold your own hand, right? Because you'll still get hit, hit by the truck. You'll be holding on to your own hand, walk out in traffic and killed. No, you've got to hold on to me because I have more strength, because I have more power. I have the ability to do what you can't do on your own. But I will tell you again, there are so many in our world who are effectively living according to the philosophy of I will hold on to my own hand. I will preserve myself. I will protect myself by my own strength and my own intellect and my own efforts and my own work. And Jesus says, no, Those that the Father has given me, I will hold, and I will preserve. The Father and I are united. No one can take them out of his hand. He says in 29, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. For those of us who are the flock of God, for those of us who are his followers, this is great promise that we are preserved and protected, not by our own effort, but by the power of God, that we have eternal life, that we will never perish, that we can hear his voice, that he knows us, and we can follow him, that we can follow him. But for those sitting in the circle, again, he's talking to people who've just said, we don't know who you are. He's told them, you're not my flock. For those sitting in the circle, the opposite of every one of those coins is true for them. These are people who cannot hear the voice of God. These are people who are not known in the same way that God knows the flock, They're still sort of lost in themselves. These are people who do not have eternal life. These are people who will perish. These are people who are not preserved and protected. And the reason Jesus declares it is to whet their appetites. They say to him, won't you tell us who you are? We're agitated in our spirit. Why will you keep us in suspense? And he's saying there's no reason for you to maintain or continue in suspense or in agitation. You can have the peace that comes from being preserved and protected by the Father over the Son holding on to you. And Jesus then says, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. And they don't like that, right? They don't like that. And the people pick up stones to kill him. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him, verse 31, and Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. Remember, he's already said, I told you who I am, and my works have declared it. 
Now here in 31 and 32, he says, which of the things that I've done that shows you that I am united with the Father, which of my good works that proves my unity with God, right? Which of those things is you're gonna kill me for? I'm not, just so we're clear, is it that I made the man born blind see again? Is it that I healed the man who'd been lame for 40 years? Like, which one of the good things I did is that I'm getting murdered for now? I just wanna be really clear before you hit me with the rocks. I like that Jesus is a little bit funny here, right? He's a little bit sarcastic. That makes me feel better about my silliness. Jesus says, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? In verse 33, the Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. I want you to understand that there are a lot of different theologians and commentators who will look at his statement here where he says, I and the Father are one, and they'll go, well, he's not exactly claiming to be united with God in essence. He's just claiming that he is united with God in purpose and in action. And based on the word and the way it's written in the original language, that's true here. But Jesus has made many statements about the fact that he is also united with God in essence, that they are one. And even though we might split hairs about it here in 2019, the people in the crowd on that particular day knew exactly what he was saying. They look at him and they say, you just said you and the Father are one, and so we gotta kill you because that's blasphemy. Because you being a man have made yourself out to be God. For the record, their claim against him, number one, is exactly the opposite of the truth. They say, you're a man making yourself out to be God. We know from Philippians 2 and other texts that what he actually is is God who has made himself a man for the sake of the people, for the sake of redeeming and rescuing us from sin and death. He isn't a man making himself out to be God. He's God who's made himself a man. But it's also worth noting that the moment they look at God who's made himself a man and they say, you aren't God, you're just a man, they're actually the ones who are blaspheming in that moment, right? The blasphemy is them calling God a man. But they pick up their stones. They say, we're killing you because you've made yourself out to be God. Because you being a man have made yourself out to be God. Now Jesus does something interesting here. I don't want to spend too much time on it. But he does something interesting. He, he's trying to pull the rug out from underneath their flawed logic. Because what they're saying is, the Bible says you, as a human being, cannot equate yourself with God. So Jesus comes in with a little bit of a trick here, kind of, and, and he says, look, your logic doesn't even make sense. He says, you know that in your, in your law, he, he says the law, he, he refers to a passage in Psalm 82. So it's technically the... The, the wisdom passages, but he says, in the law, you know it says, I have called you gods. He's referring to Psalm 82. Let me just read it to you really quick for the sake of, uh, of understanding here. Psalm 82, God is speaking to created beings, right? He's speaking to created beings. They're either human judges or they're part of an angelic divine council. And he's saying to them in Psalm 82, even though you've been given the word of God, you have not administered justice appropriately and therefore you'll be accountable for that. You've been put in a place to take the word of God and act in the place of God, and yet you've used it poorly. You have not administered justice, and you'll be held accountable. Here's what God says in Psalm 82. God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, here's where Jesus quotes, I said, you are God, sons of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Jesus says, back to John chapter 10, he says, in your own law, God says, you are like gods to those who receive the word. 
So why then would you say to me that I'm a blasphemer, the one who was consecrated and sent by God, as John 1 has already told us, he's not just someone to whom the word was given. John 1 says Jesus himself is the word made flesh, right? He says, your logic doesn't even, you're gonna, you're gonna stone me for blasphemy for saying I'm the son of God, but the reality is there are places in the scripture, they refer to Moses as being like a God to Pharaoh. He says, there's places in your own scripture that you turn a blind eye to where created beings or lesser beings are referred to as having the function of gods and you don't stone them. Now he's not making an unequivocal case here, he's not even trying to do that, he's just trying to startle them out of their illogic, right? I was, at, uh, I was at Pita Hot a couple weeks ago. I'm gonna gripe about this for a second. I was at Pita Hot a couple weeks ago and I, I ordered a little combo thing and I just, I didn't want fries. I don't wanna go to a Mediterranean place and have fries, no dice, right? When I go to a Mediterranean food place, I wanna have falafel, that's what I wanna have. So I said to the girl at the counter, I said, hey, can I, can I just, can I sub out falafel for the fries? Can I just get falafel instead? And she goes, no, we don't do that. And I was like, Okay, right, I, okay, but can I though? And she's like, no, you can't do it. And I said, well, here's the thing. It doesn't make any sense, right? Because I, I could see if falafel was more expensive, but on the menu, falafel's a buck fifty and fries are $3. I'm literally gonna pay the three bucks and you're gonna save a buck fifty in your product, right? I mean, I'm, I'm doing you a favor. And she's like, get out of line. You know, like she didn't wanna talk to me anymore, right? I was just trying to go, this doesn't, this doesn't make sense, right? If you, if you give me falafel, you're saving a buck fifty. She didn't want to argue with me, right? She didn't want to, I was, very, was being very logical. I was reasoning with her with the best of my faculties, and she did not, I had to have the fries, and then I just bought some falafel too. So it turned out good at the end. I had fries and falafel. Jesus is trying to pull them out of their, you know, they've got stones ready to kill him. He's just trying to show them that, that even their logic doesn't make sense. And then he goes on to say this, don't miss it. Jesus answered them in verse 34, is it not written in your law, I said you were gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world? He says, here I am, consecrated, set apart, holy, and sent by God to earth. Do you say of me who was consecrated and sent that I'm a blasphemer because I said I am the son of God? Verse 37, and here he makes another plea. Don't miss this this morning, church. He's laid out his arguments. He's, he's told them what it means to be part of his flock. And here in 37, he says, if I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. Here we see Jesus saying to people that he has just told are not part of his flock, Believe, if not in me, believe in my works. Believe in my works because that's a step in the right direction. If you believe in my works, the things I've done in alignment with the Father, there's the opportunity for you to know and then over time, progressively, to more fully understand that I and the Father are the same. Jesus knows he's getting ready to leave Jerusalem and that he won't be back until he comes back to take up his cross. And so he's pleading with the people. He's extending to them an invitation to believe. And they want to arrest him and have him killed. It says again, verse 39, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. Many came to him, and they said, John did no signs, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. I love the fact that Jesus goes back to the place where John the Baptist declared he must increase and I must decrease. John didn't do any miracles. He didn't do anything spectacular. There was no fire. There was no lightning. There were no lasers. 
It was just a simple message to say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It was a humble message. And in that place, the people who didn't see the signs, they didn't see the wonders, all they heard was the truth of John the Baptist and they compared it to the life of Jesus. In that place, people believe. You know, I think there are many of us who come to Jesus with this mindset of I'm gonna hold my own hand and I got it all figured out and it's Jesus' job to prove himself to me. It's Jesus' job to answer my questions. It's Jesus' job to make me, you know, believe or whatever. And the reality is that, that Jesus invites us to look at him, to look at what he has said, to look at what he has done, to humble ourselves. Belief takes place in this text. It takes place not in the midst of Jesus' arguments, not in his cleverly crafted Old Testament references. Belief in this case doesn't happen in those places. Where it happens is in the quiet place where John the Baptist simply said, he's greater and I'm lesser. It's my joy to stand to the side and rejoice as people meet Jesus. They look at the teaching of John the Baptist and they go, what he said about this man is true, we believe. I don't know who you are today. I don't know where you're at on your spiritual journey. I don't know what you believe about Jesus, but I think for many of us, we've been sort of coming at it with this mindset of I'm gonna hold my own hand. And we're saying, well, why, why doesn't God do what I'm telling him to do? Why doesn't God answer my demands And I would want to say the reality here for us this morning is that it isn't that Jesus hasn't spoken, but that you don't like what he said. That for many of you in this place, for those people here in the colonnade of Solomon, it wasn't that Jesus hadn't spoken or that he hadn't done these things. What he had said and done didn't match with their preconceived ideas. They wanted Jesus the hammer, like Judah the hammer, right? Judas the hammer. They they didn't want the meek and mild, humble Savior who came with the truth. And I would say to you this morning, what do you say about this Jesus? If you look at your own life and you recognize that that you are not part of his flock, it's not too late for you. There is no one in the room for whom the, the ship has sailed. You're not too far gone. You're not too far broken. You don't have too many questions that can't be answered. The reality is that the truth of who Jesus is and what he did, what he has articulated and what he has done can speak to you if you will come with a mindset of humility to listen for God's voice to listen for his voice and to be known by him and to follow him, that there is the opportunity for you to believe, to know, and then progressively to more fully understand because of his great salvation. Jesus looks at this crowd and says, won't you believe? Won't you believe? Would you pray with me this morning? God, I pray that if there are those in the room this morning who have never put their faith in you, those who would like to sort of put you against the corner and say, tell me plainly who you are. I'm agitated in my soul, God, that they would listen to what you have said in the midst of that agitation and that they would, they would recognize your truth, that you give eternal life, that we will never perish, that you hold on to us and you will not turn us loose, not only by your power, but the power of you and your Father in conjunction, that we can believe and be transformed that there is no one who's too far gone. Would you draw them to yourself? Would you draw us to yourself? And for those of us who've put our faith in you, God, would you convict us again about the fact that we need to be living the same life you lived, to follow you truly, not just in word, but in deed, that we would declare and articulate the truth in both what we say and the way we live. We pray those things in Jesus' name, amen.